0: We haven't met before. My name's Rebecca. Um, I'm one of the curates here. I got ordained a few weeks ago. Um, and it's... Oh, thank you. Wow, I wasn't expecting such a joyful reaction to that. Thanks, guys. I'm not... If you saw us a few weeks ago, that would be probably one of the only times you'll ever see us in a collar, me and Colin. So um, I'm, not- I'm without collar today. You can imagine it. Um, we've been, for the last two weeks, in a series called Encounters with Grace, which has basically been looking at how Jesus, in the Gospels, encounters individuals or groups, and the re- radical redefinition of who they are that is a result of that um, encounter, and of how their lives look different as they come out of that encounter. And today, we're going to look at freedom, so how when Jesus encounters um, a man who is possessed by demons, that man walks away, com- away completely free, and his life has been completely changed. So let's start by I just praying. Come, Holy Spirit, Lord. I thank you for all that you've already been doing throughout our time together. Thank you for the way in which your Spirit has already been moving and bringing freedom to our souls. And Lord, I pray that as um, we hear the words from your Gospel today, that you would continue that work. Father, would you use my words um, to bring the truth of your freedom to our hearts this morning? Pray that anything that is unhelpful would fall away and the things that are of you would take seed and would bring true freedom to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm a bit of a sensitive soul. So... The example of this would be I can't watch, like, intense movies or, or really read intense films. So when I was a kid, I didn't watch any Disney. I actually didn't watch any Disney until John and Joe got Disney Plus about three years ago and gave us their login. And Colin made me watch Mulan. And that was the first Disney film I ever watched. And the reason being is because there's always, like, a baddie or some kind of, like, darkness that is central to the plot of a Disney film that, like terrified me. So my parents wisely decided that this would not be the right thing for me to engage with. So I watched no Disney when I was growing up. Um, actually, also Harry Potter. Um, the first time I read Harry Potter was because I was playing Dumbledore in a school play, which that's a whole other thing that was years later. I was like, why did I play Dumbledore? Anyway, um, and I remember distinctly re- reading the book in order to like prep for my very important role of Dumbledore and um, having nightmares that night. Like I remember having to go into my parents' room and I had nightmares about that book. And even like now, um, it's probably one of the biggest areas of contention in our marriage is around what film to watch because we have very different tastes in film. Colin really wants to watch something like get intense, yeah and I'm like I don't want to feel anything I feel too much when I watch like I don't want to feel a thing some is always what do you want to watch? something light-hearted please do something lighthearted. hearted um same with books like if I read a thriller for instance and I do actually like reading thrillers but only in daylight and if I'm reading it before I go to bed and it gets too intense I either have to read on until it's less intense or I have to like pick up something else to read it to like move me beyond that space so I was super excited to delve into mark 5 which is basically a scene from a literal horror movie as we'll just discover. And so listen to this. We're going to read um, verses one to five, which is the setting of the scene. So they, Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a dark scene, right? So this, like I said, like something from a horror movie. So in a graveyard with a demon-possessed man who's, like, going wild. He's, like, imagine, like, maybe some mist on the ground. He's coming towards them. It's probably dark because they've just come off the, the scene with the, um, the storm being silenced at night time. So they've come off. It's probably dark. He's, like, walking towards them. He's bleeding. He's full of, a, full of lots of demons, as we'll begin to realize. He has superhuman strength. He's been able to break free of any kind of chains that people have tried to hold him. And he's, being, um, he's been thrown out of society, so he's living, the graveyards would have been outside the city, so he's been thrown out of society by everyone else, they've kind of given up on him. So he's being destroyed from the inside out from these demons that, um, that have possessed him. Now two things for us to note about this situation as we get going. The first one is, Jesus and the disciples are in enemy territory here, so they're a long way from home. Um, up until this point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' ministry has mainly taken, over, taken place in the Jewish areas around the Sea of Galilee. And in this scene, they've crossed the sea to the other side, which is pagan Roman land. So it's Gentile land. It's not Jewish territory. Um, it's an area called the Decapolis, which meant ten towns. So it's this region where there's pagan worship. The Romans are in control. They've invaded that place. They've oppressed and um Crushed anyone that was in their way, really brutal regime, um, in order for their power and their authority to be established in that place. So they're in enemy territory. The second thing is that this scene is unbelievably unclean. So cleanliness and uncleanliness was really important in the Jewish religion, um, and they should have been steering well clear of anything that's unclean. Um, But firstly, so like I said, they're in Roman land, which um, was seen to be unclean land. So anything that was not Jewish land was the pure land. The second thing is the man himself. So he's possessed. So that is unbelievably unclean. We read he has an unclean spirit. Third thing, they're in a graveyard. Again, unclean. Like the Jewish um, religion stated that if you even just stood on a grave, that made you ceremonially unclean. And then finally, as we'll get to later on in the passage, there are loads of pigs in the next field, which is, it will come to be important, but pigs were really unclean animals in the Jewish religion. They don't eat bacon. Um, it's very unclean. So Jesus and the, these good Jewish disciple boys should have been walking way out of that place. But the point of this story, as we'll see, is Jesus strides into enemy land, strides into unclean places, and brings his light and his freedom and, his, um, and drives out any darkness through his power. And what we'll see here is deeply symbolic and really powerful, because it's the kingdom of God coming up against the kingdom of darkness, and we see that the victory always lies in the kingdom of God. So let's go back to the man. The man that we see is not free. So if we're thinking about freedom today, like this is a picture of being not free. He was bound to death by darkness. We don't know how long that he's been bound for. We don't know how long he's been possessed for. But um, we can imagine that somewhere along the way, something has begun to take hold in him. And we can see that as it's destroying him from the inside out. It's taking him over. And what we do know is that he's been possessed for a long time. So we see that because he's been taken out of society. It's almost like society has given up on him. It's like we can't do anything with you anymore. Like, get out of our space, get out of our place. You are unclean, you are disruptive. You are destroying yourself and others in all that you're doing. And the fact that he lived in tombs was that he had nowhere else to go and he had been trying to control what was going on inside him or people have been trying to control what was going on inside him by binding him with these um, with these chains this man was barely human anymore the Greek word that's used here to talk about being bound is actually the language that's used to bound bind animals like to keep animals subdued his humanity has literally been drained out of him And a common medical treatment of that time is this thing of binding, because what was believed was that if you can bind someone externally, then you'd be able to bind what was happening internally. But obviously that hadn't worked. That thing of binding the external in order to subdue the internal had failed on these people. They had run out of ideas. So he ends up where darkness always ends, which is isolated, hurting, dehumanized, and walking towards death. Now, darkness and death will look different for each of us. I'm not going to downplay the fact that um, there is evil in the world and that there is very much a battle between two kingdoms going on. But for us, darkness in ourselves and in the world around will look really unique to your situation and what is going on in yourself and in your life. But I want to widen this out because darkness is in all of us and darkness is in our lives all around. There are parts of our souls and our lives that still need to have the full freedom of Jesus brought to us and the full light of God that comes in and breaks the chains that are keeping us from the freedom that he promises. How often do we try and do that thing of binding ourselves with external things that we think are going to subdue or heal the internal things that are going on in our souls? might be holding onto a relationship that um, is actually leading you towards um, the opposite of life, but it's filling a loneliness, a hole of loneliness within you. Or maybe what looks to be socially acceptable levels of drinking is actually filling a void and a pain that is going on inside of you that you've never dealt with. Or maybe it's throwing yourself harder and harder into work because you feel like everywhere else in your life is a failure and it's the only place that you can feel any semblance of success. Addictions, addictions to porn, eating disorders, gambling, things that are masking what's actually going on inside of us that we're trying to control with external ways. Maybe it's thought patterns, the lies that circulate around our mind that lead us away from the freedom that Jesus wants to release to us and into bondage and death. We all have those areas in our lives. We all have darkness in our lives, in our souls, that Jesus wants to bring his life and his freedom and his light into. We all have those parts. I don't know if you've ever sat with someone who's kind of at the end of their life or um, looking death in the face. I can think of only one time where that's happened to me, and that was with my grandma when she was um, in the kind of final days of her life. And um, she had always, oh gosh, she had always had like mental health challenges and challenges throughout her life that had really. bound her in lots of ways but then had this like spirit within her this zest for life that like would kind of be held in tension with like um those challenges that she was facing and I always think of her as like in some ways being quite fragile but in other ways just having this like steeliness in her it was like she had this flame within her that like would be blown on but it was still flickering like even if it was like flickering um softer or hotter, like it would still be there but um, towards the end of her life, those challenges kind of began to win out. And um, she was very old, so um, old age. But um, I remember when I was 19 and we, my dad and I went to visit her. And she'd been admitted to hospital. Visited her in hospital for the final time before she ended up passing away. And we went into the visitor's room. And I kind of looked around to find her, and I couldn't see her anywhere. And um, it wasn't until my dad said, oh, mum, that I looked over to see who he was talking to, and it was my nana. And I hadn't recognized her. Um, my nana was, if you imagine, the queen. That's, like, what she looked like. Like, perfectly permed hair, very put-together clothes, like, always smart, lovely, um, had these, like, alive eyes, very interested, kind. And... Um, but the woman that was sitting there i hadn't even recognized her hair was really lank it hadn't been done which i'd never seen before um she was wearing clothes that i wouldn't have normally seen her in it was just like whatever she i guess they had put her in um her eyes were like were empty like that kind of interest that 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 glow was wasn't there anymore it was almost like she'd become a shell of herself and the only way that i can really describe it is that like Um, a part of her a big part of her had actually already died and that her body was still there but like her something inside her had, had died and it was awful it was so so sad to see her just like caved in on herself sitting there like with nothing left to give at the end of her life and fortunately, like, when I think back on her, like, she died shortly after that, but when I think back on her and my memories of her, like, what I remember is the 20 years of who I remember her to be. Um, not that moment. Like, I don't remember her as that moment, even though that was the last time I, I saw her. Um, but what it did leave me with was this picture of um, how death what it looks like when, when death begins to take over and when a part of ourselves begins to die and, it, and life begins to like um, pour out and, and it becomes empty. Because that's what darkness does. Like Darkness and evil at work in the world actually lead to death. They leave away from life. They distort the image of God within us, the person that we are created to be, who we are, to the point where we can't see our true freedom or our true purpose anymore. The opposite of freedom is death. And when we begin to partner with things that are not of God, whether that's as simple as ideas and thought patterns or as complicated and complex as addictions um, and compulsions, they gain authority over us and they begin to bind us. When we believe lies over ourselves or get led down paths of unhealthy behavior, we find ourselves losing life instead of gaining it. And what we're faced here with this story is the reality of darkness both in the world and in ourselves, right? But what this story ultimately gives us is the truth of where the victory lies. And that's what we're going to get to now, because the victory does not lie in the darkness and the evil and the demons. The victory lies in Jesus and his freedom and his light that he brings in in encounters with us in his power. So what we're going to see here as we read on is that Jesus brings freedom and restoration, new life to the man himself, and defeats the very powers that have bound him from the inside out. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, in this time, naming something meant that you had power over it. So the demon says to Jesus, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He's naming Jesus. And this is actually the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus has been recognized for who he truly is, the son of the most high God, the son of God. This demon is staking out his ground. He's saying, I'm going to take the power over you, and I've got power over this man because I can name who you are. But Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. He, sa- he asks the demon his name. He's not going to play the game of, of like naming power. He's going to display his power um, and his freedom. Now, the demon says, my name is Legion. And a legion was about 6,000 troops, um, Roman troops, um, so lots of demons going on here. And the Rome, was, Rome was seen as the enemy, like Satan incarnate, right? So we see two things going on here. Firstly, we see the freedom that Jesus is going to bring to the man himself. But we also see a foretaste of what Jesus is ultimately going to do on the cross, which is defeat any external power of evil that tries to take hold over anything that is not of God. This man has somehow partnered with the powers of the world, the narratives of the world that are leading him away from death, and that ultimately have overcome him and destroyed him. N.T. Wright, who's a um, New Testament scholar, talks about how this man has like, become obsessed with Rome, obsessed with the powers that are at play and that have overcome this man's country. These outer powers have so overtaken this man that they have completely destroyed him internally. Now, Jews and non-Jews both wanted to see Rome completely overcome and destroyed because they were brutal, like we said at the beginning. They were oppressing people. They were robbing life of people. And at this time, the sea itself was seen as a a symbol of evil. So if you ever read the book of Daniel, um, Daniel talks about the sea or water as the place where monsters come from. And there was this desperate hope, this desire in the people there to see Rome, the greatest monster of the time, overcome and thrown back into the sea. So in this moment of confrontation, Jesus brings this powerful, um, this moment of the two kingdoms coming together, this powerful head-to-head of who's going to win out, the powers of darkness or the powers of light. And what happens? Jesus casts the demons out of the pigs, and the pigs run back into the sea, and they drown themselves. Evil gone to Evil. And in this moment, God's kingdom establishes itself as one of healing and freedom in that man, but also a foretaste of what he will ultimately do on the cross, as restoration and freedom for all of humanity and the whole world in um, his victory over death and bondage and anything, darkness, that would hold us on the cross. Now, we're obviously not possessed by Rome, thankfully, but I do think that there are outer powers, if you want to call it that, that we can buy into, that we can become, as N.T. Wright would say, obsessed with. Consciously or subconsciously, we might have sleepwalked into it, we might be intentionally trying to numb things that are going on inside of us. Narratives of the world, instead of choosing the freedom that is on offer in Jesus. And here's the biggest lie that I think we've bought into about freedom. Freedom is about me. Freedom is about my freedom that I can create for myself and taking off any form of external authority that will stop me from doing what I want to do. Because here's the thing about freedom in our world. Up until the Enlightenment, um, freedom was defined as the power to pursue something that's good. So people would um, try and direct their lives against, uh, uh, to a, a virtuous life, pursuing the good things of life, the things that were seen to be good that were defined often by religion or by the Bible and by authority. But at the Enlightenment, there was this radical shift towards the self where freedom became the permission or the right to choose for ourselves what we define as freedom. The freedom and the right to define what I think is good for myself. And the mindset is, let's throw off any type of external authority because that's what's actually blocking us from having the good life. The life that I could actually be free into if I wasn't held down by anyone telling me what I should be doing or not redefining freedom to do whatever we want. Authority is seen as slavery, and true freedom is for me to define what's right and wrong. But actually, when we read the New Testament, that is what the New Testament calls for slavery. Because human beings, we're not these like rational or objective um, people who can just like, always choose the right thing, whatever the right thing even is. We're emotional, we're fleshy, we're easily manipulated By our own desires that are not right or not um, leading us towards life our own brokenness but also the desires of the world the things that are around we we're not it's not as easy as just like always choosing the right thing you know Paul talks about that in his um in his letter talking about like I want to do the right thing but I do the wrong thing but then I do the wrong thing wanting to do the right thing like how many of us can relate to that We think that we're in control, but actually the things that are controlling us are the things that we've let in that we haven't submitted to to Jesus. The writer Gerald May puts it this way, regardless of how compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we are struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, and happy, but in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. That is the root of our problem. There's a story from the end of the Second World War. I really like Second World War history. Um, I don't know if anyone else is interested in this, but anyway, I'm going to tell you a story about it anyway. Um, So there's a story from the end of the Second World War um, in Japan, where a man called Hiru Anoda, who was a Japanese soldier, he was enlisted into the army when he had just turned 18, and then in 1944, the year before the Second World War ended, um, he was sent as an officer into the jungle in um, the Philippines. And he had been trained in special operations and guerrilla warfare. And I'm still not quite sure what guerrilla warfare is, but he was trained in it. Uh, I even looked it up because I was like, I should know this, but I don't know. Anyway, um, very impressive um, man, obviously. Um, And he had been given two clear orders. Firstly, hamper the enemy attacks on the island. And secondly, never surrender. Now, the year after, so a short time after he had been deployed in 1945, Japan ended up surrendering um, to the Allies, and the war ended for the Japanese. But um, So the Japanese um, officials were trying to think, how do we tell these groups of men who are in the jungle, who are completely, we can't get hold of them, how do we tell them that the war is over? So what they did was they um, printed lots of leaflets and they just dropped leaflets from the from the sky from a plane and let these leaflets rain down, saying the war's over, you can come home, like we've surrendered, like come out of your hiding, come out of um, your enemy attacks and everything, like come home, the war's over. But for Anoda, that. That um, command to never surrender, that was what was in his head, and he had this great duty to his country. Um, And he thought that these leaflets were U.S. propaganda. So he thought that if he believed that and he came out of hiding, he would be captured by the the U.S. soldiers and he would be taken um, as a prisoner of war. So he kept on fighting, him and three other soldiers. they, They created a little group and they kept on fighting. For 29 years, he fought in the jungles of the Philippines, thinking that the war was still going on. And when they came across like um, shootouts with the local police, that just confirmed to him that is the war. Like they've told me it's over, but my comrades are being shot. And they lived off like coconuts and stolen rice, and they kept gathering what he thought was like enemy intelligence on the people on the island. They killed thirty people on the island. Um, and for the final two years of those twenty-nine years, he fought on his own because the other three soldiers had been killed. And in the end, it took this guy's commanding officer from 29 years beforehand to come into the jungle to find him, to tell him to stand down. Stand down, your orders are to stand down. The war is actually over. It's been over for almost 30 years. Come home. Anoda was so caught up in his version of what was happening. He was so caught up in thinking that the war was still going over that he no longer gave up. He missed out on 29 years of freedom that could have been his, and it took an external encounter, his external um, officer coming in and telling him, like looking him there, like, "Stand down. Freedom is yours, you can come home." Here's the truth from this passage of Jesus. We can't free ourselves. We cannot free ourselves. And buying into any kind of worldly lie that tells us that um, freedom is true freedom of ourselves and us defining what freedom should be for our very own selves is a lie. And it's not just a lie, but it, was, it is one that will let us down over and over again because it will also keep us bound. It will keep us away from the freedom that is truly on offer in Jesus. The man in our story can't, affect, can't free himself from his oppression. He's tried. The human attempts to bind him have failed. We need Jesus and an encounter with the Holy Spirit to bring us that truth of freedom and to set us free from the things that bind us. And then we get to walk into a life of freedom that is redefined by freedom in submission to Christ. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The only person who can set this man free and restore the image of God as a child of God within this man is Jesus. He is fully restored to the dignity. He's sitting there in his right mind, dressed again in clothes, able to communicate, healed and able to step into the life that Jesus had created him for, God had intended for him. Because true freedom is life. The freedom that is found in Jesus and through his spirit is the life of freedom that he invites us into today. And what is that life? It's one of freedom that we walk in as we are conformed day by day, step by step into Jesus himself. The image of Christ himself, the freest person who ever lived. Jesus is the picture of freedom. And as we're conformed into his image, we step more and more into that freedom. Through one encounter with Christ in this story, our man goes from being dead, dehumanized, self-destroying, animalistic to being alive again alive in Christ human dressed in clothes sitting there having a conversation again and i imagine the crowds as they begin to um press around to see what's happened that they barely maybe even don't recognize and they have to like double take like is this that man that we threw out of our town because he was wild he was a madman like is that the man they're afraid they're scared so much so that they ask jesus to leave they can't take the freedom that jesus has on offer for them Because sometimes true freedom is so scary and maybe even offensive that we can't take it. We have to push it away. And Jesus has to leave the region at that moment. As Jesus was getting into the boat, verse 18, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your own people and tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. In some ways, this is like a bit of a weird moment with Jesus. We think that um, this is the right response to the man. Like, let me come with you. I want to be around you. I want to learn from you. Like, you've literally set me free. You've given me my life back. Like, can I just come with you? Let me follow you, Rabbi. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Like, stay here. You can't come with me. Because what's actually happening here is we see an example of Jesus' version of freedom playing out. And the man submitting to the freedom that Jesus has given him in a different way to what we might expect it to be. Tim Keller says, we see that freedom is not what the culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absence of constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose because true freedom isn't living without constraints it's not doing what we want to do or living the life that we think is the right life to lead off the back of an encounter with Christ true freedom is choosing to submit to Jesus and the life that he has intended for us and the freedom that he has intended us to walk in. being led by his spirit day by day into encounters of freedom and then walking as and following his voice of freedom as he leads us into the life of Christ For this man, freedom is actually doing the opposite of what he thinks it's going to be. For him, it's entering into the new life that Jesus has given him by going back into his community, back into the place where he's been thrown out of, where the people said, you are not welcome here, you are disruptive, you are destroying our our people. Where the people have said, Jesus, you go, like they've rejected Jesus. Here's the remarkable thing, when we read the next chapter of Mark 6 we read of Jesus going back to this exact region. So Jesus at this point has had to leave because the the people, the crowds, can't take the freedom that he has on offer. And we read in verse 53 that the people, when Jesus came back to the region, rushed, rushed around the whole region to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. This is the power of a freed man going back into his community, telling what Jesus has done of him, preparing the way for then Jesus to return in power and bring a whole community to freedom. The man had chosen to follow the way of Jesus that Jesus had laid out for him, to go back. And what then happened was he was the key. He was the herald of the new kingdom of God, breaking in for this whole Gentile region. I want to end with... um, a final story, there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I actually haven't read or seen because it's a bit too intense for me, but (laughs) (laughs) Kath kindly told me about. Um, (laughs) So if you've seen it or read it and I, like, have got this wrong, just go with with my version, okay? So there's a boy called Eustace who is a very arrogant and annoying, selfish, um, self-obsessed little boy. And when the ship, the, which I assume is called the Dawn Treader, um, is, that, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> um, lands on an island, um, they need to make repairs. They stop there on this island in order to put this ship back together. There's some things they need to do. And Eustace decides to go off on his own because he doesn't want to do any of the work. So he goes off to just like, have a bit of an explore and have his own good time um, and not have to help. And as he's exploring, he finds a dragon's cave, a dragon's lair. And he goes in, and because he's greedy, um, he finds all this treasure in there. And he puts on a gold bracelet onto his arm. And um, then he goes to sleep, because, again, he's lazy, so he has a little nap. And when he wakes up, he's, like, he's in pain, because the gold bracelet is like digging into his flesh. Um, and it takes him a moment, but what he realizes is that he is no longer a boy, he's turned into a dragon. So he put on the bracelet, and it turned him into a dragon, and at first, he's quite excited about this. He thinks, I'm the most powerful now, and like I'm the biggest. This is great. But very quickly, he realizes that no one can recognize that he's actually Eustace. All they can see is that he's a dragon, and he is completely disconnected from his friends and from all of humanity. And so he becomes lonely. He becomes desperate to not be that, that dragon anymore. But he can't actually change back. He's a dragon now. That's who he's become. And then there's this moment where Aslan, who's the lion, and in um, C.S. Lewis's stories, he's the kind of figure for God. He comes to Eustace, the dragon, and says, follow me. And Aslan leads him to this large well or large pool. And Eustace, the dragon, is so desperate to get into the water because he thinks, if I can get into the water, this pain that I'm living with from, from the flesh that is being, like, um, torn by the treasures he's wearing, like, it will be able to be subdued. Like, the pain will begin to, to, to go down if I can just get into the water, But Aslan says to him, like, you have to get undressed first. Before you can get into the water, you have to get undressed. So he begins clawing at himself, clawing at his scales, trying to get the the dragon scales off him. But he can't, like, the scales aren't coming off, and all he's doing is causing himself more pain. And he tries three times, and after three times, he gets desperate because he's thinking, I'm never going to stop being a dragon. I can't stop being a dragon, but I desperately want to become a boy again, the person I was meant to be. And then Aslan says to him... You're going to have to let me undress you. And when Eustace is later telling this story to his friends when he um, has become a boy again, he says that he was so scared of Aslan's claws because he thought it was going to be so painful, but he got so desperate from being a dragon and wanting to be a boy again that he just, he just gave up and he let, he let Aslan go for it. And I'm just going to read what he says when he describes the experience of having these scales taken off him. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it'd gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. We can't free ourselves. We can't tear that dragon scale, that dragon skin off ourselves that we've ended into. We will always stay as a dragon, whatever that thing is that is binding us. But there is one who can. And it might hurt, and it probably will be uncomfortable. And we might not even recognize who we are once we become a boy again. But we will be free. And we will be more of the people that God has created us to be. And we will then be able to carry that freedom to people who are also desperately caught up and bound and are looking desperately for freedom in places that is not serving them. And then we will be able to swim and splash and jump into that water without pain in true freedom. C.S. Lewis writes this right at the end when he talks about Eustace. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time on Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to become a different boy. He had relapses. There were still very many days where he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. We're going to ask Jesus to come afresh and bring us his freedom. Because it's only an encounter with his Holy Spirit that can truly bring us that moment of freedom.